A young man wakes up outside. His hunger kept him up all night long. He's unable to get any food at this time, though, because he spent all his money living the dream, going to the clubs, the bars, living this life. So the rotting fruit meant for animals actually seems good to him. The rotting fruit from the animals he was hired to feed seems appetizing. And he thinks all day, every day, about his family. He misses them, especially his dad. But he just can't seem to go back. He hurt them too much, and now he is contaminated. And his older, as his older brother told him, how did he get to this place? In the parable of the prodigal son, Jesus explains that this man had asked for his share of his inheritance from his father, and he spent it on his lustful living. And hired, and out of desperation, he hired himself out as a farmhand in a foreign country. Two things stand out from his condition. The first is, he is guilty. He has done something wrong, He has missed the standard, and he's worthy of punishment. He has dishonored his father, broken their relationship, and by asking for his inheritance, is in essence was asking for his father to die. Not only is he guilty, he is ashamed. He feels changed, defiled. He can't imagine going back home. The only thing overcoming his sense of shame is his will to survive. He hopes he might be tolerated if he goes home and maybe he can even be a servant. What hope can there be for him? Surely his father will never take him back, but in desperation he decides to go back, to face the shame and to ask to be a servant in his family. But when his father sees him from a long way off, the miraculous thing happens. His father runs towards him, kisses him, and throws a party celebration that his son is back. The father is vulnerable and welcoming to the son. Why? We appreciate the story, but we find it hard to believe that a father would really do this to his wayward son. Guilt and shame come into play in this story. Guilt awakens the son to his sin, and he knows that he's wrong. And shame tells him that there's no place for him to hide from what he has done. Guilt leaves the possibility open for him to go back, but shame doesn't have that same outlook. He feels undone, unclean, not accepted, condemned, undeserving. But the father's love promises that there's always a way home. Today we're going to be talking about guilt and shame, and my desire is specifically to talk tonight um, about how God views the motion of guilt and shame. Now we need to define the terms. Guilt says this, I have fallen short of a moral standard. I have crossed a line. Shame, however, is a little bit different. It says this, I am not right. I'm not okay. I'm inadequate. I'm unacceptable in the sight of God and others. I am a failure, exposed, worthless, contaminated. I'm a disgrace. Guilt says what you have done is wrong. Shame says something is wrong with me. The imagery of guilt is a courtroom. Only one person's gaze matters. You are legally liable to God for your sins. The image of shame, 
you're in the public square and all eyes are looking at you. It's like they're piercing your soul. You're not acceptable in the eyes of God or people. You feel defined by sin, your own sin, or the humiliation because someone has sinned against you. Guilt says this, you are responsible for your wrongdoing and legally answerable to it. You are wrong, you have sinned. Now, here's the thing I want to make clear. When I talk about guilt, I want you to understand I'm talking about wrong on account of sin. When we see this definition, guilt can actually be valuable because it tells us truth about sin in our own lives. If we have sinned, we should feel guilty about that, and that should force us to repent. If we are not living up to our responsibilities as parents, we should feel a sense of guilt about that, repent and make change. But when I'm talking tonight, though, I want to make a disclaimer. When I talk about guilt and shame, I'm specifically talking about guilt and shame over sin. And I'm going to say that over and over again. Guilt and shame over sin. This is a sin that you have personally committed. I'm not talking about shame where we talk about someone has done something to you. I think that's a very important topic, and if pastor allows me, I'd love to come and talk about that again at a later time. But today I'm specifically talking about sin that you have committed. And my goal tonight is to help us overcome this guilt and shame. So if you have your Bibles with me, turn to um, Genesis chapter 3, because we're going to see that shame wasn't originally part of God's story, but right in the beginning, it entered into God's story. Genesis chapter 3. As we enter chapter 3, chapter 2 talks about God creating the pinnacle of his creation, man and woman. They were created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And he declared to them to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And the end of verse 25 of Genesis 2, Uh, 2 says this, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. But something changes in chapter 3. Shame enters the picture. Let's read. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, 
who told you that you were naked? Have you not eaten the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The woman said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Bible starts out originally where there's no shame. There is no sense of shame, guilt over sin at all. But right in the beginning, Adam and Eve make a decision to want to be like God, and shame and guilt enter the picture. We see this in verse 7. It says, The eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked. They, they were open. They realized the foolishness of what they had done. God had given them everything in creation except one thing. Don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And yet they did. And so they became sorely ashamed. They knew they were naked. And what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Adam and Eve didn't understand that sin will always bring shame into our life. Shame over sin is a deep sense that you are unacceptable because of something you did. You feel exposed and humiliated. And for Adam and Eve, they felt exposed and humiliated. They had a problem. They felt filthy. They were overwhelmed by their sin and they hid from God. That is what shame over sin does to us. The guilt and shame are unbearable. King David talks about this in Psalm 32, verse 2. He says this, Your arrows have struck me deep, and blows are crushing me. Because of your anger, my whole body is sick. My health is broken because of my sins. My guilt overwhelms me. It's a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and stink because of the foolishness of my sins. I'm bent over and rake with pain. All the day long I walk around filled with grief. And raging fever burns within me. My health is broken. I'm exhausted and completely crushed. My groans come from an anguished heart. I once had a counselee describe his guilt over his sin like this. I am a terrible person. I'm awful. What was I thinking? What is my family going to think? What is my spouse going to think? What is my church family going to think about me? It went to this point. Do I really believe in God? Am I really saved? I don't deserve to be a Christian. Maybe I am not a Christian. I know what the Bible says, Lawrence, but I know what the, you preach, but I just don't, I haven't lived up to it. Who am I really? When you begin this roller coaster of self-condemnation over your sin, there's three responses. You can try to cover up your sin with works. You can shift the blame or you can confess and forsake. Back to our story with Adam and Eve, they made some decisions when they were exposed, when they had sinned. And what was it? First one was they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This was crazy. They tried to hide themselves. They tried to put a mask on. The thing that's interesting is sewing themselves covering is like a template for every false religion in the world. It's attempt for unholy man to mask themselves, to hide themselves from God. So people will try to do things in their life to get a right standing with God. Adam and Eve tried to hide themselves, but for us, 
we all want to have a right standing. So if we feel guilty over sin, maybe we'll try to find a right standing in some other place. Maybe we will pursue effort in our job and I'm the hardest worker, so God will reward me. Or maybe it's family righteousness. Because I do the right thing as a parent or as a husband and my kids are in control, God will look good on me. Or maybe it's legalistic. Hey, I don't drink. I don't smoke. I'm faithful in my tithe. I'm not like that person at church. I'm not like this person. We can find and and do all these things to have this works-based righteousness. And we can be like Adam and Eve and cover our sin, cover our shame, cover our guilt. But it doesn't work. It didn't work for them, and it will not work for us. Not only did they try to do that, verse 12 and 13, here's what's interesting. They tried to blame shift, verse 12. The man said, first thing, he sinned, the woman God you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree and I ate. The woman's response, the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate in verse 13. Adam and Eve do what we try to do and minimize our sin. We are no different. When we feel guilt and shame over sin, it overtakes us. And if we don't choose to repent in the moment, we get caught up in our sin and in the hard circumstances. And so we can try to defend ourselves, explain things away. You know what? The only reason I had an outburst at home was I'm just really tired. Work has been stressful. You know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. So just bear with me, uh, wife, because this is just, this is what happens. Or, oh, that sin that I committed, it's a family curse. It's just in my genes. My father did it and his father did it. So it's, it's not really my fault. It's just, I'm wired this way. I don't know what to change about it. We can hide like they try to do. I try to cover up my life uh, and maybe put good things on top of it to mask. Or we can downplay, shift blame to other people. What's interesting is they tried to hide from God. And notice the instance, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. The Garden of Eden was where they were supposed to be with God and dwell with him forever. They had this perfect union with him. They were in the very presence of God, and yet they were afraid. And what's interesting to me, and I I read this and I'm surprised, God's children, his first creation, notice what it says. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. If I created Adam and Eve and the first thing they do is they sin and break our fellowship, I'm not walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I'm coming down raging with fire and going to destroy him, okay? It's going to be game over. And yet that's not God in his grace. God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. It goes back to God being gentle and lowly at heart. We feel exposed, and in our exposure, God is willing to be gracious to them. Isn't that amazing? You see, too often, Adam and Eve, they thought they could hide from God, but God was present everywhere. They thought they could run away from their sin, but they couldn't. They needed to come clean to God. How do you manage guilt in your life? Well, 
here's how we need to do it. The first thing you must absolutely know about managing guilt over sin is this. The amazing grace of God to forgive you of your sins. Psalm 32, 5. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to you, the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. We can get forgiveness through life through this amazing grace of God, and yet it doesn't come cheaply. Our sinful debt is charged to his account. God takes the penalty that we deserved and places it upon his son. We are responsible and we deserve punishment, but Jesus has paid our debt. He's been nailed to the cross and we have been set free from sin. Every instance of lying and cheating and backtalking, every instance when we haven't measured up to his standard, he's taken it to the cross. And this is a change. Colossians 2.13 says, And you who were, here's the thing, we were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How do you get this forgiveness? How do you get this grace? First thing you need to do is need to confess your sin. Turn with me to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Bible says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. When you deny your sin, you are denying yourself access to God's forgiving grace. When you admit your sin, you're giving yourself access to his grace. You need to admit, be real, stop the faking and the lies and just say it straight. God, I am guilty. I have done wrong. I am responsible for my actions. And we need to get this into our heads too, is we need to make sure when we are guilty over sin, maybe we've sinned against someone else, our sin is primarily against God. Psalm 51 verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Yes, our sin does affect others, but our sin primarily breaks our relationship and our fellowship with God. That is where we need to go to. We need to confess our sin to God. And we'll talk about later about forgiving yourself. But because I don't believe it's a concept, but I got ahead of myself. Next thing, after confessing, we need to affirm God's truths in our life. Notice, if we confess our sins... He is, not he might be, he possibly is going to be. No, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God says in this passage that when you confess, you are forgiven. You have been made clean, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
we must affirm our new identity in Christ. You are forgiven. You are clean. You are chosen by God. You have been adopted. You are loved. God has made you brand new. These are the truths we need to say to ourselves and stop talking in self-condemnation to ourselves. Also, though, we need to recognize, we need to go to God and affirm these truths because his love is amazing. Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How is God's love personified? How is it personified? Well, let me use one of my teens tonight. A man, imagine one of my teens, uh, Emmanuel Hermio, okay? He is older now. He is, um, I'm able to marry him to uh, the girl of his dreams when he graduates from college. Imagine him walking down the beach hand in hand with the love of his life, okay? They've kicked off their shoes. Their toes are in the squishy sand. It's just a picturesque moment. And Emmanuel turns to uh, his wife, gazes in her eyes and says, I love you. I really do. What does he mean? Let's assume he is a decent Christian man with virtue, and he means this, uh, Darling, I can't live without you. Your smile paralyzes me from 50 yards away. You're funny. Uh, You're beautiful. The scent of your hair, everything about you transfixes you. I love you. What he most certainly doesn't mean is this. Hey, girl, in spite of the fact that your nose is so large, it belongs in cartoons, that your hair is so greasy, it can cook fried chicken, that your knees are so bony, a camel looks elegant, that your personality is like Ursula, baby, I still love you. Now, I don't think he's going to say that. Now, when God says he loves us, what does it mean? Does God say when he loves us, you mean everything to me, I can't live without you, your personality, your witty conversation, your beauty, your smile, everything about you transfixes me? No. This is what God says when he says he loves us. Listen, morally speaking, Your thoughts are an abomination. Your foul mouth is intolerable. Your terribly selfish personality is disgusting. Your sins make you repulsive to me. But I still love you. I'm going to the cross for you. You're not attractive, but I've chosen to love you. That is amazing love. My friend, if we don't think that, if we think we deserve God's love, then we are in trouble. What we need to recognize is we don't deserve God's love, but that's what makes it so amazing. So when we affirm these truths about God forgiving us, it's we're not worthy of it, and yet he still loves me? How in the world? That is an amazing God. So we need to confess our sin, affirm the truths of God's grace and his forgiveness in our lives, and then we need to request that Jesus transforms us. We need God's transforming grace. If we don't respond to guilt and shame over our sin in the right way, we'll hide, we'll deflect, or we could beat ourselves up and think this, that we need to forgive ourselves. Now, I ask that question because it actually nowhere in the Bible will you find the phrase that you need to forgive yourselves. We are commanded to forgive others, and God promises to forgive us but you're not going to find it in the Bible. Pastor Rick Thomas writes this, if a sinner man could forgive himself, 
he would not need a perfect sacrifice. Your problem isn't that you need to forgive yourself. Your problem is that you need to embrace the limitless grace of God. If we say we need to forgive ourselves, then we make our own standard. And so from one day to the next, if I haven't lived up to my own standard, then I'm, I'm cowering in fear. But yet, God has this righteous standard, and we can never attain to it, and yet he still loves us. We don't need to forgive ourselves. But what happens is we'll have self-condemning talk. Uh, one author writes this, Condemning self-talk still st- stands with you at the center as you reflect on what you have done and as you describe what you think you deserve because what you did. Here's the problem with all that. It's all about you. The problem is there's too much you in all this. You don't need more of you. You need Christ. And the only thing to break this vicious cycle is you need to stop talking about yourself in categories of condemnation and then begin talking to God in categories of confession. I don't know what you guys may have done in your life. A majority of people said that they're still struggling with guilt over their own sin in their life. But one verse I want to share to you, it's so important, it's a little bit later, Pastor Steve, is Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2. This verse, my favorite verse, and God has impacted me so much from it. And it says this, There is therefore now no condemnation. None. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. There is no more condemnation. Stop talking to yourself in forms of condemnation. I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I lived this way. No, no more. He's taken it all on the cross from you. You don't have to beat yourself anymore up because he has forgiven you of all of your sins. He has cast your sins as far as the east is from the west. He has chosen not to remember your sins. Do not condemn yourself, but believe in his grace in your life. This is the God that we serve. We are not guilty anymore. We are not broken anymore. God loves us and declared to us that you are his child. You are pure. When he sees you, he sees Christ. You are forgiven. Church family, I don't want us to live in guilt and shame that breaks us down. I want us to live in victory for God. Yes, we may struggle. Yes, we may have faults in our lives, but Christ says he's going to forgive us. So live with this mindset. You are not guilty anymore. And notice this, Jesus Christ, all throughout the Bible, because the Bible specifically in so many instances talks about guilt and shame. Notice how Jesus goes to those people who would have been considered outcasts in society. The Samaritan woman who is measuring herself by the community standards the woman that was caught in the very act of adultery, the tax collectors, the disciples who denied any association with him, he always went to them. He went to the paralytic. He went to those people that were considered the down and out. And Jesus is coming for you. You see, we no longer are guilty anymore. We no longer have to let the shackles of sin and shame and guilt weigh on us. We're not guilty anymore. Right now, what I want you to do in this time is uh, my in-laws, the Bracelands, recorded a video for you 
um, Not Guilty, a song by Mandisa, and they did it in sign language. I love this song. This was another song in my life that meant so much to me. So I want you to go ahead and watch this video.
Let's pray. Father, you know the hearts of our family here today, Lord. You know people that are struggling with guilt still over sin that they have committed in their lives. Father, I do pray, Lord, that they can recognize, they can come to you and confess their sin. And you are faithful. You are just. You do and you will forgive them of their sins. Lord, I pray that they can turn to you and know that once you've forgiven them, you choose not to bring their sins up again. You don't have an account or record of it. Lord, may they live in light of this, this truth that they are free. They have been delivered and they can live their lives willing to forgive others because of all that they've been forgiven of. We thank you for this day. In your precious name, amen. You are dismissed.